that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 458 for October 7th, 2016. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week is our returning guest, Alistair Jenks from New Zealand. How are you doing today, Alistair? I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks, Alison. And it's October 8th here. I just have to put that in there. It is. Oh, that's it right. Is. It is where you are. <laughs> I'm always ahead of you. I'm going, come on, come on. I have a text expander snippet for that. I can't be wrong. <laughs> well, I told Alistair that, uh, as I've said before, I could listen to him read the phone book. And then I realized, well, there aren't phone books anymore. So I, I could listen to Alistair read a list of uh, IP addresses and I'd be happy. So uh, anyway, we thought we'd uh, get together and maybe talk a little bit about programming. I thought we were going to talk about Yelp entries. That was our, our chosen subject, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, something else for you to read. But those can be interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Well, so you've uh, been on the show before to talk about programming, but we kind of want to take a little bit of a new angle here, right? Yes. Listening to Bart talking about programming, especially as you've sort of reached the, not not the pinnacle of, of the programming by stealth, but the sort of the, I don't know what the word is. But Maybe you, we're on the precipice. Actually, that's that's a good word. You, you, you're actually starting to solve real problems with the programming, and it's not, it's less about learning all the the underlying stuff and actually making use of it in the real world. And that that got me thinking, uh, especially when Bart said uh, on a recent episode about he he uses programming as a tool, and that fits wonderfully with how I've uh, had used programming throughout my life. So yeah, I just thought that some examples of of how you can use programming in the real world rather than just hey this is something i want to learn so is this kind of like uh when you're when you're talking to a kid who's learning geometry in high school and they're saying i'm never going to need to use this and actually geometry does feature in in my notes so uh, we can even include that <laughs> but like you know what do i need it for why would i ever want to know it right yeah, pretty much. I mean, like Bart, I think uh, I enjoy programming, so that that is a big part of it, and in fact, that's how it started. But you know, I've also turned it into a profession to some extent, and yeah, I I have side projects, and sometimes you know, real problems, a problem to be solved comes up, and programming can help me solve them. Well, very cool, very cool. So, where did you where did you get started in this? I got started as best I can figure out when I was about 12 years old, when my father decided that these newfangled computer thingies, uh, I'll, I'll cut to the chase, this, I'm thinking 1980, 81, somewhere around there. So those of you who fancy doing the maths can figure out how old I am. <laughs> and he he was doing uh, various little projects. Uh, he he worked for the, well, say worked for, he was a member of the Aviation Historical Society and they have a lot of information about, um, you know, aircraft in New Zealand that he wanted to try and wrangle in some way. And he wanted to, you know, he was thinking about databases before they were a big thing in home computers and that kind of stuff. And so he brought this Dick Smith System 80, which is a TRS-80 clone for the, you Americans or a video genie for you Europeans. Oh, wow. And it was a, a very early personal computer and it was a, you know, a localized version from Australia, basically. And I, I don't know whether I took an interest or whether he encouraged me or both, but you know, I started mucking around on that thing and figuring out what it could do. And it's like, you know, programming is, is my hobby uh, and has been from the beginning, because it's kind of fun to make stuff, <laughs> and yeah, make it do I, your I used bidding. To, yeah, I mean, I used to make plastic kits of aeroplanes, which my brother did a lot of, and he got way better than I did, and that was a little dispiriting, I suppose. That he could do a much better job than I could. So I, I never found that I had uh, great, you know, dexterity skills with um, building physical things, uh, although I did enjoy Lego, and. What I found with the computer was because of the way my thought patterns worked, you know, I could think through the logical steps that I could make it do my bidding, as you said, and that was kind of cool. So I just started doing that and, you know, seeing what I could make it do. And I've pretty much been doing the same ever since. Okay. So that was where you got started. What have you, uh, what have you started thinking about working on these days? Well, it's interesting that what I have most recently been doing actually does call back to some of those early uh, tasks that I accomplished. And one of the things that I always 
like to imagine. I always like to imagine that I tell people, uh, you know, this is the way it was in my day. But for example, <laughs> follow um, get off my line. Yeah, pretty much. I, yes, I have learned to start saying that. <laughs> um, the graphics on that early computer were very, very simple. I was working out uh, before recording that the entire graphics screen of that Dick Smith System 80 would be slightly more than an inch wide on the original iPhone. Oh, my so, gosh. On the original iPhone? Yeah, it was 128 by 48 pixels. Wow. <laughs> and all you could do was turn a pixel on or off. That was it. It was black or white or or black or green, depending on the color of the monitor that you had. And that was all you could do. And you mentioned geometry before. For whatever reason, it got into my head that drawing circles would be kind of neat. And it turns out there's two ways to draw circles. There's the, the basic geometry method with sines and cosines, or there's the um, Pythagorean method of you know the square of the the sum was it the sum of the squares on the two sides is equal to the square of the hypotenuse. That's right. One of my favorites. So, I, you know, I, I was in school at that stage. I'd learned this neat trick of of these squares and worked out how you could actually plot a circle pixel by pixel. And turns out that doing it with the sines and cosines is uh, more accurate, but doing it with the squares is faster when your computer's not very fast. Ah. Now, that's really, really basic stuff. And these days, you know, if I was to ask a young programmer, how would you draw a circle? They would say, well, you call the circle command. Don't be dumb. <laughs> but understanding under the covers how these things work, um, I find gives me a better appreciation. And the geometry became very important with my recently released um, iOS app, Night Clock, because on that clock face, guess what? <laughs> there's, there's a, a circle. circle. <laughs> I mean, there's not actually a, well, there's one circle in the middle, but. The original design had a circle around the outside, and that wasn't so hard because you can just say, you know, you can call a, a system API and say, give me a circle centered here. But when you start doing things like putting the little tick marks around for the hours or calculating, you know, given that it's currently 15 seconds past the minute, where should the second hand be pointing? Oh. And actually calculating where to start the line and where to end the line requires geometry. And I had, well, it's not fair to say I had no problem doing that because anybody who's done geometry for a while knows the quadrant issue uh, where you you can often work out what the angle is, but you're never quite sure whether it's on the left or the right or the top or the bottom. Hmm. And okay. you get into interesting models where a clock starts logically from the top, but the model of geometry in computers tends to start from the right-hand side and go anti-clockwise. <laughs> So you're having to do coordinate transformations the whole time. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm off by 90 degrees and going back to front. And then I have to deal with the <laughs> fact that all the functions are in radians and not in degrees. And yeah, I've got some really interesting behaviors. I but like the, it. Basic, the basic geometry that I learned to use to draw a circle uh, back in the, in the day still comes into play with you know just producing a simple clock face. And, and any clock you see on the App Store, is doing geometry. The oh, programmer will have it. had to deal with geometry in some way, shape, or form. See, personally, so, I, I geometry was my absolute favorite in school. That was I just to me. I think I actually peaked mathematically in geometry. I loved calculus, and I and I I loved uh, all of the other math subjects. But I, geometry was just that was some good meat. And I I was using geometry uh, two days ago. I was working on uh, sewing something, and I needed geometry in order to solve the problem. I wanted to jump back really quick. Uh, you said that the uh, the TRS eighty clone you had was one hundred forty eight pixels. That's four of those would fit on the face of your uh, Apple Watch <laughs> Forty wow. on the 42 millimeter because uh, it's uh, actually, uh, yeah, it's 390. Actually, I could probably get, uh, I could even get four on my, uh, on my uh, smaller watch. So if that puts anything in perspective for people, that was the entire programming space. Wow, I, I'm I'm looking forward to an Apple Watch emulator of the system. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I play I, games on my watch. I do know that was one of the fun things somebody did early on when the uh, the 5K display, the 5K iMac came out. They took the 128K Mac screen and superimposed it onto that screen, and it's this tiny little spot down in the corner. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how far we've come over the years, but at the same time, you know, it's still just dots on the screen, and there's more colors and there's more more of the dots, but 
you're you turning still on have and to off, just aren't you? Turn them on and off. I mean, yeah. you know, it gets a little bit more complex with that than that with the colors, etc. But yeah, essentially, you are doing exactly the same thing, and that's where programming I've found uh, as a tool things that I learned mumble mumble years ago uh, are still useful today. So. You know, the fact that I learned BBC Basic uh, on a BBC microcomputer in the, in the mid-80s in itself is not directly applicable. In fact, I, I found an emulator recently and tried to use it and found I'd forgotten most of how you actually do it. But the principles in that are still true today in, in Java or JavaScript, etc. So it does – you don't – even though technology is advancing at a rapid rate, you, you still learn lots of skills that you can apply as you go forward. Okay. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And one of the other early um, techniques that I used was I had a Casio PB100, which I was, again, reading up on the, the history of this uh, over the last couple of days, and it was... Apparently, it was one of the first things touted as a pocket computer, not the first, but the first from Casio, versus a programmable calculator. Now, the difference between those two things is pretty slim, actually, if you think about it. But this was a a single-line display, very much like a calculator, of 12 characters. And it had the basic programming language built in. And the way I used that at the time was when I was in high school and I was in math class and you know we were taught how to do some exercise and a friend and I had these devices and we would sit down and when we were told, you know, here's 30 examples for you to work, we would write a program to solve the examples. And I've always liked that our math teacher at the time didn't have a problem with that because she realized that if we could write a program to solve the problem, then we understood how to solve it. <laughs> so it wasn't cheating that you weren't using a piece of paper? No, because she saw that, you know, if you can get this to get the right answers, well, then you clearly understand how to do it because you've been able to, you know, be methodical about setting up an algorithm to actually solve the problem. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of uh, forward thinking of her not to just be afraid of the technology or think it was cheating in some way, but to actually yeah, understand. Yeah. Because this was in the days of Apple IIs and, and whatnot. So, you know, a computer in the classroom was, was quite novel. You know, we had in, in my school, by the time I left, uh, we had still only had one classroom that had computers in it. For the record, at the same time in my education, I was actually using a slide rule. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to learn how those work one day. <clears throat> <laughs> I've gone back and tried. I can simple. I think I can do division with it still, but I can't remember how to do anything else. But there again, that technique of just writing a short program to solve these repeated problems, and it it does come into my everyday life. More often than not these days, I actually use Excel, I suppose, to to you know take some data and, and do what-ifs or, or quick calculations that I can't do in my head or don't want to do on paper. Good man. But I... But I, I do, I do still use programs sometimes. And you and I were having a discussion the other day about the size of iMacs, the the new 4K and 5K iMacs, and oh, we right. were comparing. You know, I noticed that the weight of the 5K iMac is is like nearly double the weight of the of the 4K, and we couldn't figure out how this made sense. And one of the questions you had was, how much more screen area is there? Well. A couple of days later, I was mucking around um, trying to practice my Swift skills, ah. that is to say writing in, in Apple's new Swift language, and I thought, what's a problem I can solve? Now, this is kind of back to front and that I went looking for a problem so that I could practice solving it, but I just wrote some Swift. It took me about half an hour to, to muddle through it, and I now have some Swift where I can just say, here's the resolution of the screen so that I can get the aspect ratio right, and here's the diagonal. What's the screen area? And then I just say, okay, well, this one's, what is it, 5120 by 2880 and, and 4096 by whatever the other figure is, and then divide the two to get the ratio. So I could now use that to compare the size of any two Mac, well, not even just Mac screens, to be honest. But that's that's the type of thing that having programming, I mean, yes, you could use Excel for that particular task. You certainly could use Excel for that. But having programming as an extra tool, there are times when I've gone to Excel to solve a problem and I've just given up because I can't 
get the information into Excel in a way that makes any sense to me. So it is an extra tool. Yeah, yeah. I I know it doesn't count as doing programming in there, but it is funny how often we do take up Excel to solve a little problem like that. That's what I like to use personally. I think when you start using um, ifs and vlookups and the like, you are programming in Excel, especially with the ifs. Yeah, I'm I'm big on the ifs and uh, vlookups. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's where you've got a, a big data set and you can say, okay, for some, look for something in column A and return to me what's in column L, but in the same row. And uh, yeah. it's a really good way to look things up and find things in it. But I, that is one of the hardest ones to use. Every single time I have done a VLOOKUP, I've had to start from scratch trying to figure out how to use it. Uh, it's like it's the first time. And I eventually beat it into submission, but it's never, oh, yeah, you just blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's got you've got to set up an array. It's got all this stuff. But uh, I, I love me some VLOOKUPs. I've been uh, been known to have some fun with those for sure. Yeah. I mean, effectively, you're doing database programming when you're doing that. And the other one that I use quite often is conditional formatting oh. where you can – uh, that's fantastic. Oh. You, know, you, you can just find the stuff that's outside the norms or, or you know, wrong or some such. And it's just, again, laying out the data is a big part of it in Excel, I must admit. But yeah, you know, finding I, I like, out how to actually do the, the queries on what you care about is, is programming. I like, uh, I like to say that using Excel and pivot tables in particular, conditional formatting is a perfect example of taking data and turning it into information. So you can have this giant table in in Excel, but if you say, okay, I want to see, uh, I've got a temperature, say, of a of a um, of a piece of equipment is what this giant database is. You can say, whenever the temperature's gone over 120 degrees Fahrenheit, make that color red or or the yeah. the whole row red, and then you can just scroll through and go, boom, there it is. Um, I know you could sort and stuff like that, but without messing up your data, you can actually see these things. And there's all kinds of more conditional formatting you can do, but it's really terrific to turn that data into information. Like that's when I needed to worry about it right there on that line. And it's, it's not just information either. It's it's actually helping you come up with answers. Like one example we have is on one of the servers at work, we have a bunch of disk pools which have a certain amount of available space. So I enter that space into a spreadsheet and then I say, right, now I've got a bunch of things that I want to put in these pools and they're this big and I just start doing manual what ifs. Let's put this one in pool one and this one in pool two and this one in pool three. Oh, that went red. Can't (laughs) do it that way. And it goes red when it goes over 100% full kind of thing. So I can just start fiddling around with the numbers and plugging them in until I get you know all greens or no reds or or some such. So you can use it to to what if uh, in a manual sense as well. Okay. But you know as the example I gave of um, the max screen sizes where I, I was kind of cheating. I was actually wanting to create a solution and looking for a problem to solve. <laughs> there, there, there have been a couple of times uh, in my programming, let's call it career, but it wasn't professional at the time, um, where there was a very real-world problem to be solved. And I, these are the most fun, I find, is when you have something in front of you that you really want to or need to solve, and you think, I wonder if I can do this. And you and you set out to solve this problem, and when you do the the feeling, I mean, you know, I think I've described it in a, a contribution to the Nocella cast recently. That I made this feeling is actually the be all and end all of programming. Is that yeah. when you finally create something, and it's one thing to sit down and create something because you know, like for example, I suppose my clock app. I did want a clock that I could put beside my bed that wouldn't you know, light up the room. I could have found something. I could have gone and bought a little alarm clock and put a piece of cellophane over the <laughs> over the the clock face to dim it. It wasn't that hard, but you know, I thought I'd solve it a slightly more interesting way. But there's a couple of examples, as I said. One was actually very early on, and I think it was using a PC. I can't remember the the details. But as I said, my father was uh, a member of the Aviation Historical Society of New Zealand, and for a long time, he was the editor of their newsletter. And this was all done on the cheap, as you can imagine, with a society-type publication. It's much like I imagine Mac user groups are. If they produce anything, they'll do it as cheaply as they can. And what he 
had as a problem, which he decided we should be able to solve together, was how to typeset a page of text, by which I mean he had a text file he typed up on the computer, and this was before the days of, of proper word processors, but he had the text in a file, so it was literally just you know like your piece of JavaScript. It was just text with no real um, formatting to it at all. And he wanted to output that onto a page that he could then send to a printer to you know make a whatever they do a master off it and, and print out a bunch of copies. And he wanted the text what they call fully justified, so that it lines up along both the left mm. and right margins, like in a book, and, like in a book, like in some books. And he had a an Olivetti Daisy Wheel typewriter. This is dating the story. <laughs> yeah, and, I was going to say, was this last week? <laughs> uh, no. And these days, he would just pull out pages or even text edit can probably do it. Right. But this Olivetti typewriter had these amazing things called proportional fonts, ah. which were, you know, you had, they had a, the, a Daisy Wheel, which was just a wheel with a, a ton of spokes on it and one letter on each spoke or one character on each spoke and it would spin the wheel around to the right place and hit it with a hammer and it would go through the ribbon and and make the impression of the letter on the page but the advance of this particular typewriter is it knew how wide the letters were Ah. so on a classic typewriter every letter you type advances the, the 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 carriage exactly the same amount right this one knew that if you typed a lowercase i to advance it a little bit, and if you typed a, a capital M, will advance it more. Oh, wow. It, but and it how... knew when you had that daisy wheel in? Yes, yes. Oh, wow. You put the daisy wheel in, there was some kind of chip or something or identifier on the daisy wheel so that it knew which font, and then the widths were built into the typewriter itself. That must have been magical when they first put that out. <laughs> it was. It was pretty out there. Yeah. Um, but it made for, for very nice looking text. But what we figured out was that it had an RS-232 port as well, which is a <laughs> serial interface. You know what those are. And you could drive it from the RS-232 port and you could basically say, print this character and you know move the carriage along X amount or down to the next line, etc. And so what we figured out was we found the data. It must have been in the back of a, the Um, data sheet you got with each daisy wheel or something but we found the widths of each letter (laughs) and we wrote a program that worked out how much text you could fit on a line based on the width of the characters in the text and you inevitably you know you'd you'd be out by say half a word and in fact if it was a seven letter word that took you over the end you'd probably find you could technically fit three and a half letters in based on the widths. So what you had to do was to say, okay, well, I can't put that word on this line because I'm not going to break the word. That'll go to the next line. But now I'm not reaching the right margin. So how much extra space do I need to add? And here's the important part. Where do I add it? And what oh, you do is you, you go you back and find... Yes, you go back and find the spaces in the line and just add a little bit to each space. Oh, okay. So you don't start messing with every letter because I was going to say that'd be a lot of math going, well, okay, we're yeah. going to give, uh, you know, 3% to the M's and 1% to the lowercase I's. And, you know, <laughs> that'd be really no, hard. You, you put it in the spaces between the words and, and you get some some extreme examples where you end up putting a lot of space in because, you know, the word anti-disestablishmentarianism occurred at the end of the line. Right. Um, and, and and it was only the M that didn't fit, so so you end up having to put a lot of space. And that's why sometimes you do see that. Uh, yes, I I think the uh, Mac Roundtable theme, which hasn't been updated in twelve years, is uh, proportional or it's it's a fixed width or full justified, yeah. I should say. And that same thing will happen. We'll end up with something like the words are a half an inch apart. <laughs> Yeah, and and if you get really unlucky with your text, you get what they call rivers of white, where those those big gaps line up between lines, oh, and rather yeah. than seeing the text, your your brain focuses on these rivers of white running down through the text. And we didn't go so far as to try and solve that problem, but we did have to work out. You know, I need to. I think with spaces you could add half spaces or whole spaces. So we would say, well, we need to pad this out with you know seven half spaces, and we've got nine spaces on this line. Which ones do we pad out? And there were you know typesetting rules that the printers would use as to where to put the space, generally in the middle rather than towards the end. So you know spaces two through eight will get the extra half space in them, etc. Huh. So we we sat down and we worked out 
how to calculate, you know, where the line was going to end, where we needed to add all the spaces and then we'd end up, you know, building up the characters to create this one line and then send it to the typewriter and then move on to the next line. And so in the end, we could give it any text file and it would produce um, potentially multiple pages of perfectly spaced and, and fully justified text. I can tell by and, your voice that you still remember how it felt to succeed at that. Yeah, I can still remember some of the details of how we did it because it, because it was so much fun because we had an end goal and right. there was no real variation in that end goal. It, it had to be this. It had to be fully justified. And to do that, there are certain things you have to deal with. And so we dealt with them and it, you know, it took us a, a number of goes. Um, but we got there and from that point on, at least for a while until the, the real word processors came along on, on subsequent computers, that's how the text was set for the, the Society magazine. Wow. That's pretty cool. I like that story. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things I remember, as I said, because we spent a lot of time aiming at a goal rather than just you know spending time doing something because it was cool to do it. We, we actually had a goal that we wanted to do. And what it did was save them money. <laughs> because they didn't have to give it to a professional typesetter to set it. Right, right. Well, I I think that's where I'm finally getting to. I, I, I tried to use Automator about 25 times before I started using it to actually do something. And the problem was I didn't have a problem to be solved. I'd read about the problems other people solved and I'd say, well, I don't have that problem. It can't, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to. I mean, I didn't disbelieve that it helped them, but I just couldn't figure out something for it to do. And it's been only recently that I've started seeing, you know, little bits and bobs here that I could uh, I could automate that make me happy. Right. And And what you find then is when you've got a very specific problem to solve, two things happen. Number one, nobody else has solved quite the problem that you're trying to solve. Or if they have, they haven't done it in quite the way that you want to. Like the clock. But Like the clock. But in, on the flip side of that is that the way that other people have solved that or similar problems, there will be nuggets in each of those that will help you get to your, your final solution. So, right. you know, the clock, for example, I looked around. Um, in fact, one of the early versions, a friend of mine uh, had an early beta of it. And he said, really cool, but... Um, does it rotate when I turn the phone? And I said, mm -hmm. well, yeah, you should be able to see that. And he says, yeah, but if I've got rotation lock on, how would I know? Oh, good point. And how on earth do you, how do you show which way up a clock faces if you don't want to put digits on it? <laughs> and Apple actually prompted me with the answer. And one of, I forget which watch face it is on the Apple Watch, you can set a monogram. And the, the cool thing to do is to put an Apple logo in there. Um, and if you look at traditional watches, they'll have the word Casio or Rolex or, or whatever. <laughs> and they will put that in the inside the clock face below the 12. And yeah, there, there may be some magical distance between the 12 and the center, but that's where a monogram goes. And it goes there on the Apple Watch face and it goes there on old real watches, etc. So Night Clock has a monogram below the 12 to solve that problem so that if you rotate your device and you have rotation lock on, you can say, whoops, the time is sideways and not be looking at the clock and thinking, what time on earth is that? So the because monogram is? It's a tiger moth. Um, <laughs> yeah, is a, long story. Which is an plane. airplane. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, well, it is, it is also a moth okay. originally, <laughs> but which the airplane is named after. Um, so yeah, that, that was looking at other people's, you know, solutions to, you know, what does a clock face look like in order to find my solution. Um, but also, you know, as you go through trying to figure out how to uh, automatically, um, you know, do archiving or deleting old files or whatnot, you can, you can find other people who've done that and you'll say, yeah, but I don't want to do it quite like that, but you can use their, uh, their work and build on it, for example. So do you usually start with someone else's code on a project like that, like on your clock? Or do you start with your own code and then start looking for pieces? If for something like the clock, I would just start on my own. And then as I come across problems, I might look for inspiration or solution elsewhere. Because with the clock, it was, it was a vision that I had that I want this thing and I'm going to build it because nobody's done anything quite, you know, actually nobody's done anything even close to what I wanted. So 
I'm going to start, I'm going to build what I want, and then along the way I have problems and, and seek solutions for them. But if it was you know, automating a process, you know, much like many of your podcasting processes are, where it's, it's a sort of a slightly more atomic problem, that it's just one thing I want to solve, then I might actually go looking for somebody else's example and say, well, yeah, it's close, but let's, let's just do this to it. But it depends on the size of the problem and, and how close anybody else might have come or you might imagine anybody else might have come. Okay, okay. And the other story that it goes back to a, a very similar time, actually. I suppose it was a bit after the, the typesetting one. And this this actually was solving, well, not solving. It was proving a, uh, what's the word, hypothesis uh, on a life and death issue. And mm. it again involved my father. He also um, was a member of the Royal New Zealand Air Force and later the Civil Aviation Authority in New Zealand. And in both of those roles, he played a lot um, in the safety area. I say played. He worked in the safety area. <laughs> and one of one of the things he came to me with one day was he said, can you get the, your computer, I forget which one it was actually, to draw this, to prove this hypothesis? And it was a really interesting one. When you're landing an aircraft, you usually arrive at an initial point, which is a certain distance from the airfield and a certain height. And that sets you up for a slope, which is, I think, three degrees is standard. And you go down this three-degree slope, and if you do it right, you end up landing at the right spot on the runway. (laughs) And if it's the wrong slope? If it's the wrong slope, then, yeah, you miss the runway at one end or the other. Or be dead. (laughs) But it, it's it's really a simple triangle. You know that initial point. You know, it's, it's I think it's like ten miles out and so many feet up, etc. So it's a simple triangle, and you would think that a pilot would cope with this by solving triangles on the way down, if necessary. You know, if I, or even just simple uh, interpolation that if I've gone half the distance from the initial point, then I should be half the height that I was at the initial point, because it's just a straight line. Okay. The theory was this, that some pilots were were using this technique where they said, okay, when I arrive at the initial point and I look out the front window, I can see the runway and it subtends, I'm going to use this word because I don't know a more generic word, it subtends an angle in my vision. So it looks you know, so high, so many degrees of, of arc in my vision. And the supposition was that if they kept that angle the same, that would keep them on the glide slope. So it was a rule of thumb as it were if you keep looking out the window and that runway still looks you know logically as high as it was at the start then you'd be fine but if you think about it if it's if you're 10 miles away and the runway looks quite small if you're now 10 feet away Mm -hmm. and the runway still looks that small you've got to be pretty low (laughs) and the supposition was that pilots who were doing this were crashing into the ground short of the runway because of this approach Okay. And so what he said was, can you prove this? Well, okay. So pro- <laughs> had to ask prove you- that, that by estimating this angle, it's wrong? I'm confused. Pr- prove that by keeping that angle the same, you're going to crash short of the runway. Okay. Because they, that's what they were finding. Now, there may have been studies that, that had this information, but, I, but he I, didn't I must have, have missed it. Something. I must have missed something. If If you were... At this three degree angle, at a certain height, at a certain distance, that's the correct angle. What are they, what are they doing that's causing them to do it wrong? So, if you look out the window at the runway, mm-hmm. you you probably close one eye to do this properly, and you got a vivid marker, and you marked on the cockpit where the far end of the runway was, and where the near end of the runway was as you see it through the window. Okay, so it's a straight line under you, and you're you're calculate you're with your brain you're looking at the at the front end of it and the back end of it is a certain distance on the screen on the windscreen oh, on the windscreen yeah so there's a certain distance between those two lines right okay so the theory is that if that distance remains the same on the windscreen as you go down uh-huh. that you're in the right place that was mm. that was the theory that the pilots were using the theory that they were wrong says well well, if, if, it, you if it still, never moved, if, oh, you're you're not saying the absolute location, the distance of that line. Well, and but eventually, it's got to go under location. you. No, 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 because the absolute location means you're going to hit the ground. Well, true, true. 
So th- these are all clues that the, the theory was wrong, I suppose. In fact. <laughs> okay, all right. But, but this was what they were going for. And what he wanted was, can you draw the path that they would take if they actually succeeded in keeping this angle the same? And what does that path look like? You know, oh, the path okay. that they're, they're actually going for is a straight line from the top of the triangle to the bottom on, on this three-degree slope. That's where they should be. What is the actual path that they will fly if they keep this angle the same? Okay. Now, it was actually very tricky, as I recall, because it was solving triangles with only one known factor. Now, I haven't actually revisited ha- um, how to do it in uh-huh. recent years, but I, I do remember thinking, hang on, I don't have enough information. So I had to start throwing out, um, you know, I know this at the start and I can work out what that initial angle was. Now, when I move, I go horizontally, but I don't know how much height that I've, that's what I'm trying to find out, the height. Right, right. And, and so I had to but actually start throwing. you're dropping at the same time. Yeah, so I had to start throwing guesses into the program and saying, well, what about here, what about here, what about here, what about here, what about, oh, now the angle matches, so this is how high I was. So I had a, a loop of distance going from the start to the runway and then another loop within that trying to find out the height that he must be at for that angle to work because you can't just take the angle and back calculate the height directly. Right, right. Because you've only got an angle. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't know the distance because you don't know the height. So it was, it was an interesting problem but we did it in the end and what you get is a curve that sort of, it's, it's, imagine if you strung a cable from that initial point to the runway and it would sag that's pretty much the line that they were following. And it meets the runway at a tangent. So what that means is that by the time you get to the runway, you are looking literally directly along the length of the runway from runway level. Now, unless your aeroplane is built upside down, your eyes are going to be well above the height of your wheels. So your wheels will have hit some way back and hence (laughs) crashing short of the runway. So I was finally able to produce this this graph showing the the proper line and the sagging line underneath that described the mathematical path that these pilots were following. And that particular graph, you know, I printed it out on my dot matrix printer. Wow. Um, that particular graph wasn't used in the magazine, but the he got the printers to um, draw one up, or the publishers, I should say, to, to draw one up based on that graph. And they published it in the safety magazine saying, don't do this because this is what actually happens. Wow. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, you'd think that that theory would never have gotten developed on account of the people who followed the theory would be dead. They wouldn't even be able to tell somebody this was their theory, right? I, if they followed the theory like precisely. religiously, precisely, then they would all be dead, yes. But I guess some of them, you know, after a while, it's like, oh, well, now I can kind of just see where I'm going and fly by the, you know, by the seat of my pants kind of thing. (laughs) So, you know, probably a lot of pilots thought, oh, I'm a bit low and just sort of dealt with it. But there had been a a number of actual accidents um, where aircraft had crashed short of the runway and and it was supposed that this technique was um, involved. So what what he wanted to do was to show why it's a bad idea you know you could tell from these simple facts you you discovered a couple that i hadn't thought of as as i was describing it why this is a bad idea i mean the obvious one to me is that when you're really really close it can't possibly be right because you have to be impossibly low therefore the geometry can't be right at any time if it's not right at the limits right Right. if it's gone so badly wrong at the last minute where did it start going badly wrong (laughs) was the question i had in my mind um but yeah so Again, the only real way to solve that problem, I, I suppose we could have started out with some graph paper and done a lot of calculations. But what this enabled us to do is to plot the smooth curve. And and that was actually used for the, the diagram in the magazine. I think they basically sort of, you know, measured the, the curve off the graph that I'd created and, and just, you know, Redrew used it. a curve tool on a, on a you know, like an affinity designer type thing and just matched the curve. Type <laughs> actually, of it was probably the graphic. Actually, it was probably one of those pieces of plastic at the time that we uh, used to use to draw the smooth curves on drafting. Oh, yeah. Might have been one of those. What were they called? You know, I don't think I ever knew the name. I still have mine, of course. Because there was was the ones that had all the different curves fixed in in plastic. And then there was also the um, flexi curves. Oh, yeah. I never had those. That that was the high-tech stuff in my day. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. 
I love tech drawing at school. Yeah. Well, so yeah, those those are two examples of of real world issues. You know, one pretty straightforward saves some money, which is quite popular, uh, and one life and death where where programming was able to solve the problem and and realistically um, there was no other way for us to solve those problems other than get, turning to programming. Right, right, right. Trial and error isn't what you want to use in the plane crash one. That was already tried, right? <laughs> yeah, trial and error in the program is fine until you perfect it, but uh, yeah, not in real life. Yeah. So when you look at the landscape today, uh, you mentioned learning Swift, and uh, I know that you're following along with programming by stealth, working in JavaScript. Are there other languages that you're looking at? Tons over the years, absolutely tons. And when you say looking at, that is accurate. Uh, I, 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 I tend to tinker with things, and you know, I have a lot of side projects over the years that have sort of gone nowhere. There were great ideas that I started mucking around with and and never took to fruition. Um, and for example, when Java was popular back in pre two thousand, I guess, I looked at it and thought hey, this is a cool language. It, it sort of ticked a lot of the boxes that, that made me like the language and, and the way that it was structured. And I learned about object-oriented programming, which absolutely did my head in for several years <laughs> until I just you know got to the stage where I grokked it. And I really liked Java. And by the time I actually sort of thought about, hey, I should actually properly learn it and, and do stuff with it, it was not popular anymore because it turned out it was a bit of a shall we say, resource hog. And it, it, you know, it still lives today on servers, but it, it, you know, I was more interested in the, in the front end stuff and it, it just sort of went away because it was ho- performed horribly, it still does. Um, so It is you know, too bad of, that JavaScript shares the name with Java because uh, I've had people where I'm telling them, oh, it's really cool, I'm learning JavaScript. They're going, why would you want to learn JavaScript? That's old and slow and stupid and you're an idiot. I'm like, no, it's JavaScript. It's something completely different. Like, Oh, yeah. I've had that conversation quite a few times. I think I think a lot of the confusion um, between those two, other than the obvious name, is also that while JavaScript is not based on Java, it is a programming language, so it does actually share a lot of similar traits. Hmm. But it shares those traits with a whole lot of other languages that don't have Java in the name as well. So okay, that's kind of lost. But you know, putting squirrely brackets around the place. Well, you do that in Java and JavaScript, and it's object oriented, which so is Java, and you know th- there's a lot of similarities there. But those similarities apply to other languages as well. So I, I got confused between the two for a number of years before I learned that you know one of them was um, very much a traditional compiled language, and in fact, it's not even strictly speaking that. But and the other one is just a script language that runs in browsers, and that was it at the time. Right, right. Um, but what I have found with these languages is once you understand the basics, which Bart is giving you through JavaScript, and, and JavaScript is actually, a, a, aside from being a particularly useful language today, it's actually a pretty good language in the sense that it's fairly loose, so it doesn't tie you down. And I, I think I've heard Bart mention this a number of times, saying, oh, in other languages you wouldn't get away with this. But what it's freeing you up to do is to learn the basic principles, conditionals, loops, um, variables, all that basic stuff, you know, strings, numbers, booleans that kind of stuff because that stuff is in every single language now when i learned programming i learned it in originally i think it was a microsoft basic on the the system 80 which is very very rudimentary and over the years basics got a pretty bad rap as not being a terribly great language to learn in because it doesn't have structured programming as they used to call it but what I really learned was BBC Basic, on the, originally on the BBC microcomputer. And that was a version of Basic where they added the pieces that people had always criticized as missing. Yeah. So traditional Basic didn't have repeats or while loops, um, and it didn't have functions and stuff like that. Well, BBC Basic did. They added those things in. And so I learned a lot more of the Basic stuff on basic, pardon the, the confusing terminology there, the simple stuff on basic, in uh, a good version that gave me some some good habits in terms of structured programming, which is don't use go-tos. <laughs> so That's probably the only that, thing I remember from my early basic training in 1976. There's go-to, a really... Go-to 10. There's a really, 
cool joke because um, go-tos are a nightmare and I've, I've been dealing with code at work that's using go-tos and it's astonishingly bad way and it's really ruining my day when I'm trying to figure out what this program does but there's a there's a really cool joke that I don't see it around that often there's nothing wrong with go to and structured programming so long as you always pair it with a come from command <laughs> now that's actually a really hard joke to get if you're not into programming but if you are into programming it's actually quite funny um, but yeah, learning the, the structured programming uh, side of things early on has helped me massively because it, it's instilled good habits. But the basic conditionals, loops, variables, applies to every language. Some of them have some weird, weird behaviors. Uh, the Probably the second language I ever really learned was one called RPG2, which is an IBM language designed originally in the late 60s. Uh, on mainframes and mid-range computers and it is oh, when you know it it's really fun to show it to people and watch them freak out <laughs> because it is nothing like any other language that you've ever looked at nothing like but if you know where to look you can see variables loops conditionals it's just the syntax is massively obtuse compared to, to most languages certainly modern languages and you like um, you that? Know, like just to say, uh, it's like showing teach showing that you learned Latin. Yeah, and and I mean RPG two has has a particularly peculiar feature in that um, the whole program is always a loop, just intrinsically, <laughs> just because it exists. So you'd you'd basically give the name of a file, and then you'd have one line that would say, you know, just print out the value of of this field in the file. And that's it. And it would print out the entire file and you can show that to people and they go, but how, how does it actually do that? <laughs> it just does. It's magic. Um, and RPG2 was probably the only language that I could ever hand on heart say I knew the whole language top to bottom. Wow. Because it was, it was actually pretty simple. Uh, it's never been true of any other language. Are you enjoying um, Swift? Yes, I am, because Swift ticks a lot of the boxes for me that Java did back in the day, and that it it's doing things the right way. What do you mean um, by that? There's a there's a purist approach to programming that says that this is the way you should do things. I'm trying to think of an example, but things like um, you know things. I'm trying to think. JavaScript you know, is not not a number, for for example. <laughs> you, you kind of you're, you're tied because there's not a is a number function in Java, which would be nice. Thanks, guys. Um, but you know, if you if you had an is a number function, it would be bad form to write is not not a number. The idea is to write is um, and this is actually described in some of the Swift documentation that you should be Swifty, which is an interesting word. And what it is is write something that's concise and easy to understand. And triple negatives aren't. And triple negatives aren't. No, no, I can't think of other examples, but there is. Yeah, well, here's an example. When you do a switch statement, uh, which is you know, a form of conditional where you say switch on, say, say score. So you take the number that, that is your current score, which is, say, for a number from 0 to 100, and you say switch on score. If it's less than 10, hurry up. If it's less than 20, come on, you, you're getting there, but make an effort. If it's less than 50, you're doing well, keep going, and, and so on. And you, you put all these different conditionals on this one number. And in some languages, you can just say, you know, if it's less than 10, if it's less than 20, if it's less than 50, and then just say, well, that's it. And if it's greater than 50, well, nothing happens. Swift says, no, you've left some out, and I want you to tell me that you did that for a good reason. So I'm going to make sure you put every possibility in there. That's I realize that's actually a slightly bad example with using less than instead of equal sure, to. But, but yeah. it insists that you are exhaustive in the possible outcomes. So that's being, um, what's words? well, swifty. That's being clear and concise to say, well, there may be some cases here where it's, in this case, do nothing. But there will be a piece of code there that says, in this case, do nothing, which tells the person reading the program, you didn't I've forget. thought of it, yeah. and I've dealt with it in this way. Not the, well, either it doesn't mean anything, or they forgot to do it. 
Yeah, yeah. And so Swift goes uh, goes a long way in that direction to making sure things are explicit and clear and additionally concise. So okay. it's a very, very nice language in that respect. Uh, but at the same time, what Swift does that Java failed to do is they're also focusing on performance. And from what I've read, it performs. You know, when you create your programs uh, and you do it in the Swifty way, <laughs> they actually perform really, really well compared to if you wrote a Java program and you followed all the proper rules and do things the nice way, you ended up with a bit of a pig, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I wanted to ask you, how have APIs changed the world today? APIs are the bane of my life, but they're oh. also the life the lifeblood. Explain <laughs> so, so what an API is. It's well, if we go back to my circle drawing days, there were APIs, and the API was set a pixel on or off. So you you didn't you couldn't just sort of reach in and and just prod a pixel. You had to tell the system, I want the pixel at, at these coordinates to be on or off. Or I might want to ask you whether the pixel at these coordinates is on or off currently. And so you would ask the computer to do or to tell you something. And it would go off and, and it had code somewhere in, in the operating system that would figure out how to do that for you and come back and give you the answer. So that's all an API is. It's it's a, a an interface to which you can talk and say, do something or tell me something. That's is it. it's it very sort of nice. like uh, it's the border conditions that this is how you talk to this device or to this program? Yeah. Like your it, hooks it's, to talk to it? Yeah. It, it's similar to the buttons on your microwave. You know, okay. There's all okay. sorts of code in the back there that's, that's you know deciding how fast the turntable should turn, which direction it should turn, uh, how much power it should put to the whatever that thing is that creates the microwaves, etc. But your interface is 70% two minutes. Okay. So okay. that's a, that's a defined interface, or and you know that you give and a, minutes is your interface. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's your interface, and you and you give it the variables seventy and two, and away it goes. Or in fact, you know the the variables will be hours, minutes, and seconds, and percentage, for example. And then there's a simpler API that says potatoes, that just <laughs> you know we'll figure out the percentage and the hours and the minutes and the seconds for you, and we'll we'll have an extra. Um, sensor input that will tell us how big the potatoes are or, or some such. I don't even know yeah, how they do that, to be honest. Potatoes are a lie. It'll either undercook or overkick those potatoes. <laughs> well, we didn't say the program was correct, <laughs> but it, it has based an on, interface. Based on popcorn anyway, which is the only thing I ever cook. So, uh, But why do, you, why do you say they're the bane of your existence, though? They seem like a good and necessary thing. Well... Back in those old days, you learned the turn a pixel on, turn a pixel off, and then everything else was up to you. You had to do the geometry. You had to decide when when and where pixels are going to be on and off, etc. And you the, you learned all the logic about how to – like if you wanted to produce a, a user interface, you produced a user interface. You put the text and the pixels on the screen as and where you saw fit for the whole thing. So you had to do a lot of work, but it was all up to you. Come forward to today, and if you want to create a user interface on an iPhone, you can actually create an app that has stuff on the phone, on the, on the screen, that scrolls and highlights and, and animates without writing a single line of code. Because there's so much built into the system that, that automatically gets done for you. And then when you do want to write a line of code, you say, tell me when the person pushes the button. In the old days, you would have had to, well, you didn't have a mouse, so it would have been kind of hard. You would have had to say, go and look at the keyboard and tell me if they're pressing the X key. And when they're pressing the X key, I'll go and, oh, hang on, tell me when they've let go of the X key. And then I'll go and do what I'm going to do, like move my player left on the screen, etc. Now you, you call an API and you say, hey, can you please tell me when the user clicks on this or taps on this button or hits this key on the keyboard on a Mac or moves the mouse in a certain way or over a certain element or all these various things. You've seen it um, just now in the JavaScript where you're saying, please tell me when the user clicks on these paragraphs. So you're calling an API to say, I want to know when something's going to happen. And then when that thing happens and you get called again, you say, or call an API to do something. So you're not actually going in and saying, find this piece of HTML and where the little, the little left angle bracket starts, I want you to ins to delete that and put something else in there and then put this angle bracket back and all that sort of thing. 
So you're more and more dealing with in the large pieces of work. And the problem with that, and the reason it's the bane of my life, is yeah, there are million, millions of them, millions and millions and millions of them. So and it's the harder life to and, find them when you want because of that? or um, it, it can be, but the life and death of an API is how well it's documented. And at work, I, I deal with um, one main set of APIs for the, for the server that I, I generally look after, and they're really, really well documented, and that's what I've gotten used to. And in more recent years, I've moved off into other areas, um, particularly software that didn't originate on this type of server, but has been ported over to it, and they don't follow the same conventions in the way that the parameters are used and they don't follow the same documentation standards. For example, mm-hmm. you might have an API that says fetch a message off a queue. So um, you know, a message arrives on a queue and I want to see what's in the message. And I'll go and look at the documentation for this API and it says, oh, here's the API to get a message off a queue. Easy. Uh, it has six parameters. Okay, so I click on a link in the documentation. It's on a website. And it says, here's the six parameters, and it gives me six links. Ah, okay, click on the first one. Oh, the first parameter is the name of the queue that you want the message off. For details on that, click this link. <laughs> and, and you go down about six levels, but of course you need to know how to use all six parameters, so you end up with, back, back, you back, end back, up back. with a mess, to be back, honest. Back, back, back. So the documentation in that case leaves a lot to be designed. It's really, really, really hard to follow. And then when you do follow it, uh, like at one stage, I ended up just cutting and pasting all the bits that I needed and into a Word document and just looking at it all at once. <laughs> and then they start doing weird things about how they handle numbers, for example, um, or one that I dealt with recently that was dealing with a, a tape library. It, can, it has a facility where you can do a backup across multiple tapes simultaneously. Pretty cool. You get this kind of like raid on tapes. But in order to do this, you have to create a thing called a media definition. And there's an API for that. Dear God, that was a difficult one to get through. It has, it has a structure that says one or more media definitions, each of which contains one or more tape definitions, each of which contains one or more volume definitions, each of which contains one or more label definitions, each of which contains the information. And every one of those things needs to include the address of every other one of those things. <laughs> so <laughs> nightmares are made of this. Yeah. Wow. And I can see as uh, they add more and more APIs, that makes that problem worse if it's not documented in an easy way. Do you ever run into problems where there, the API actually changes? So in version two versus version three, the API, what it does changes? One of the common things with APIs is that they tend to, uh, well, certainly the ones I use at work, they have like a contract that says this will not change. If we change the behavior of it, we'll actually add an extra parameter to the end. And unless you use that, we'll keep behaving the old way. So that's actually a very um, useful and and a good reason to use the APIs in that sense. The, The Apple ones tend to stay largely the same. And they'll just add new ways of doing it, you know, so a, a new version of the API or, you know, you could previously call it with A, B or C and now you can call it with D. So it tends not to be a big issue. Some APIs do get deprecated, which is to say for a couple of releases, they say, well, it's still there, but you shouldn't be using it. And then eventually they take it out and you do have to deal with that. But they give pretty good information in that respect. Okay. Okay. Well, this has been pretty interesting, Alistair. I like, or very interesting, I should say. I like, I like hearing the stories from the past and and seeing how the the changes have gone through. And uh, and and it's interesting to me too that I think I think you're one of those people who just lives with an innate curiosity, and that curiosity keeps you learning. It does. It keeps me learning. It doesn't necessarily achieve anything, but, <laughs> but it does keep me learning. <laughs> Well, I don't think there's ever been a better closing line to a discussion than that. All right, Alistair, if people wanted to chat with you more, how would they get a hold of you? Pretty much everything I do or the stuff that makes it online is at zkarj.me. And if you want to catch me on Twitter, which is probably the, the best place, I'm also zkarj on Twitter. 
All right, great. And we've got a link in the show notes to your fabulous Night Clock app, which uh, both Steve and I have been using and uh, and we really, really like it. So uh, I can highly recommend it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon. So if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeed.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeed.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.